Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. My name's Tim Coe and today joining me again is our guest, Dr Richard Lowe. Richard, welcome back. Hi, Tim. Richard, you are a past president of ASCIA. Um, tell us a little bit more about what ASCIA do um, and what resources they have for GPs and patients. ASCIA stands for the Australasian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy. So we have as part of our members clinical immunologists, nurses, dietitians, scientists, uh, GPs, pharmacists. So we're there uh, in terms of um, helping uh, our members manage patients with allergic diseases as well as immune disorders. Uh, We provide resources for health professionals. So we have got uh, something that we call e-training and we've got modules uh, for food allergy, anaphylaxis, immunotherapy, eczema, allergic rhinitis. And these modules are available for free. So there's a six-hour module that covers uh, many of the allergic conditions that gives uh, 40 um, CME points uh, for GPs recognized by the RACGP. But with a lot of handouts that are available, so many GPs are aware of our ASCIA anaphylaxis action plans, but we actually have action plans for eczema, allergic rhinitis, and we have uh, information sheets um, that uh, GPs can print out uh, for their patients. Uh, We've got um, favourite questions and answers, uh, as well as uh, uh, handouts uh, for patients, like uh, a patient's peanut allergy. Uh, There is a a handout that, that helps patients identify foods that contain peanut, uh, gives advice uh, on that. And it's the same for egg and cow's milk and a large number of other foods as well. Yeah, it's fantastic. ASCII's website's one of the ones that I've got bookmarked in my browser and I'm constantly going back and forth with the resources. The the action plans in particular are well thought out and they're simple, they're very easy to use. So Mm. I, I really would congratulate you on that. Thank you. Let's talk more broadly about allergies. Um, What are the common allergies you see as an allergy specialist? Um, Certainly what's overwhelming many paediatric allergy services is food allergy. Uh, As we've mentioned, one in 10 infants now have food allergy. But it's not just food allergy. We have patients um, with uh, allergic rhinitis. And although it's seen as trivial, Uh, It affects quality of life. Uh, It affects uh, grades. You can drop from being a grade A student down one level just in a bad hay fever season. Mm -hmm. For adults uh, with this condition, it potentially can cause uh, what I say life-threatening issues. And people say, how can allergic rhinitis kill? But if you take a sedating antihistamine and if you're working with heavy machinery, imagine a truck driver having allergic rhinitis taking an antihistamine that is drowsy and having uh, an accident or um, work in a factory. There are very good treatments available, you know, intranasal steroids, uh, but immunotherapy uh, is something that uh, a lot of people are still not aware of. And there's some new ways, sublingual, both in terms of drops and more recently tablets for dust mite for older children and uh, adults uh, that are efficacious. They are expensive, they are not on PBS, and something in terms of national strategy we're trying to advocate, uh, perhaps making it more cost-effective uh, for our patients. 
Mm. Um, other things uh, that the National Allergy Strategy uh, is very aware of is drug allergy, uh, which um, is often misdiagnosed. So about 10% of children often diagnosed as being allergic to penicillin or related drugs. So you often see a child coming with a fever, you prescribe amoxil thinking it's a pharyngitis, a day or two a rash appears. So the concern of course is this is penicillin allerg allergy, when it possibly and probably is related to the infection of virus causing it. So these children are labelled as penicillin allergic and the label sticks with them for the rest of their lives. So it's very rare that delabeling, uh, referring appropriately uh, that these patients are delabeled. 24% of adults aged 80 are diagnosed as having adverse reaction to drugs when probably only 5% instead of 24% are truly having adverse reactions to drugs. So for those in aged care delivery, it's really um, important to be aware that sometimes this label, asking them, why are you allergic? And you often find, oh, my mum told me 50 years ago I can't take it. And maybe that group perhaps should be, you know, referred to see whether they are still uh, allergic to the medication. Mm. Yeah, I think this concept of delabeling is, you know, fascinating for GPs because we do have so many patients with dr recorded drug allergies. Yeah. And it reaches, it can reach a stage of, of clinical urgency when you, you get, especially in the setting of multi-resistant uh, organisms, yeah. where your choices are limited. Yeah. And often medications they are used um, are not uh, the first line. They are often more expensive mm. uh, and often associated with more side effects. So I think it's important, you know, when you're looking at patients and saying, um, yeah, I notice you say you're allergic to penicillin, can you tell me more? And sometimes the history is not good and that may be an appropriate patient to be sent for delabeling. They may not be ill, they may be only 40, but in 20 years' time or 30 years' time, it'd be really good if they're delabeled, i.e. not allergic to penicillin, if that's the case. The reverse is uh, also important. If they're truly allergic, then we have to have a system. GPs are actually very good through your computer system, but working in a hospital, we don't have that ability. Like I can prescribe handwrite penicillin in a penicillin anaphylactic patient. You've got software that stops you from doing it, so uh, that's great that you have that. Mm. Uh, so let's get onto the topic of allergy testing. Um, broadly speaking, we see two types of allergy testing that, that GPs can refer for. One of them is, is blood testing in the form of RAS testing, yeah. and the other is skin testing. Um, when should we consider one or both or the other? Uh, it's very hard for GPs uh, to skin test. Access to the allergens, uh, because they are not registered for use, is limited, and People need to be, there is a bit of a skill in terms of skin testing, awareness of different allergens from different companies and uh, different types of lancets can cause different sizes for the skin test. So on the whole, unless GPs uh, have special skills in this area, have done courses, uh, I would say skin testing is something probably the majority of GPs uh, shouldn't do. Uh, blood testing uh, is freely available. But it's important to be aware of which test to order. The things that I think GPs should not order uh, are what we call mixed 
food mixes. So often I'll see a patient that's been sent saying that the child is allergic to six different foods because they've ordered a food mix and it's come back positive. People need to realize that only one of the food the child may be allergic to, the other five might just be bystanders. So I've got a poor child who's had a food mix and the poor mother is not giving milk, egg, peanut, wheat, soy and fish when the child might only be peanut allergic. Mm. Again, ordering um, should be based on history. A lot of parents come and say, I'm worried, could you please test the child? So if you order in a child um, with eczema, you might get what's false positive. So you might have a positive blood test. All that means is the patient has allergy antibodies. It doesn't mean the patient will be clinically allergic. Um, I'm um, Asian. I have a positive skin and blood test to rice. I rice every day. Mm. So I've got uh, allergy antibodies, but I'm not clinically allergic. So it's just being aware that um, you know, if you order blindly without a good history, you might end up with a result that um, it's hard to interpret. Where it's very useful is if you've got a patient perhaps with a good history of anaphylaxis to a bee sting, getting allergy antibodies would help me. So if you order specific IgE antibodies, usually about three weeks after sting, if it's positive in somebody with a good history of anaphylaxis, I can then start allergy shots immunotherapy that day. Otherwise, I have to do the IgE, wait one or two weeks, get the results. So that would be very useful. Great. Hmm. Um, talking about bees and wasps, we often see people who have significant reactions uh, following a sting. Um, at what point should they be assessed for allergy? I mean, often you see, say, if you get stung on the face or the, the hand, quite a profound reaction. Is that a allergy or is that a sting reaction? Um, certainly, we describe four different kinds of reactions. So if you're stung in your hand and the hand swells up, that's a small local reaction. The risk of anaphylaxis is low. So those patients don't need to be referred. They don't need EpiPens and they don't need immunotherapy. If you get a large local reaction, so stung on your finger and over a period of one to two days, the swelling goes up to your wrist, up to the elbow and sometimes to the shoulder. That's a large local reaction. And again, for children and adults, they don't need immunotherapy. A generalized cutaneous reaction, so if you're stung on your hand, and you break up in hives all over, or your face swells up, uh, or your lips swells up. For children, the risk of anaphylaxis is low, and usually we do not recommend immunotherapy. For adults, the risk of anaphylaxis is estimated to be 30%, and those patients should be referred in discussion about immunotherapy. Mm. If you've had anaphylaxis, clear anaphylaxis, stung on your finger, uh, upper airway obstruction, low airway wheezing, or cardiovascular patient gets pale floppy collapses, the risk of anaphylaxis with subsequent stings is 50%. That patient should, uh, if you see them, immediately be prescribed an EpiPen, because sometimes it may take a few weeks or months before the patients are seen by allergy specialists. And that is a group that uh, I certainly uh, would um, you know, uh, suggest immunotherapy as the treatment of choice. Mm. And that's the group, uh, certainly if you do the blood test, demonstrate the patient's IgE antibodies, that would help me a lot because when I see the patient, and I know they've got allergy antibodies to bees, the reason we need to demonstrate the allergy antibodies is it might have been a wasp 
it might have been another insect. I don't want to give uh, immunotherapy to the wrong uh, insect. So that's why we need to demonstrate uh, algae antibodies by the blood test. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I think I would probably tend to err on the side of not prescribing an EpiPen and wait for the allergist to assess, but really what you're saying is you should probably arm them with the EpiPen relatively early. If they've had anaphylaxis, the risk is 50%. One of the problems is as a GP, it's hard then to prescribe an EpiPen unless you've treated the patient with adrenaline. I think the important thing is you can ring us, uh, you know, ring an allergist through a phone consult. You can uh, do that, but if a patient's been stung by a bee and had anaphylaxis, the risk for the next bee sting is 50%. And Murphy's Law is while you wait six weeks, patient might be stung by a bee. So that patient should be equipped with an EpiPen, an anaphylaxis section plan, and also demonstrate how to use EpiPen. Because I still see patients who have been given EpiPen and has, uh, have an action plan, but have got no idea how to use the device. Hmm. Well, moving on, let's let's bust some myths now, Richard. Um, we hear a lot about allergy rates in Australia being incredibly high. Um, firstly, maybe your thoughts on that, and secondly, this idea that allergy rates in uh, underdeveloped countries are much lower. And, and thoughts on you know why that might might be the case. Um, it, unfortunately, it's not a myth. Uh, in Australia, we do have high rates. Uh, of allergies, uh, of food allergies, allergic rhinitis are there. Um, there are lots of theories of why developed countries have more allergies. Uh, so it may be the hygiene hypothesis, uh, meaning that we're too clean. So IgE in the past is an antibody f- that fights against parasites. So if we deworm patients and we get rid of uh, parasitic infections, maybe that's one of the theories uh, that uh, allergy might be increasing. Overuse of antibiotics, increased rate of cesarean uh, sections that we're not introducing the babies to vaginal uh, microbial flora might be a reason. Uh, our slip slap slop campaign, the fact, and that's something that's really important. I don't wish people to stop using sunscreens. Uh, but using sunscreens has led uh, to some of our children and adults being vitamin D deficient. And there's some suggestion that vitamin D deficiency might be associated with an increase in allergic disease. As you can hear, when I go to all these theories, I could summarize by saying we don't really know. <laughs> We've got lots of ideas, some of which I think uh, have some truth, but I suspect it's not going to be one uh, it's going to be a combination of these factors that's increasing the risk of algae. Yes, um, developing countries have lower risk. It is increasing. So we're now seeing it in countries as they become more developed. Uh, I've got Sudanese refugee children who are coming in 10, 12, now developing peanut anaphylaxis. Mm. And the parents are looking at me and say, we've never seen it. Mm. So, you know, same genes, there's something in the environment that's uh, changed, uh, uh, you know, these children developing algae, so young adults. Yeah, I've certainly, I mean, there's a lot of discussion around the the parasites and, and the, the prevalence of parasites. Uh, you know, I, I I think in my house we face a chronic battle with intestinal worms with my kids, which <laughs> is, and we, we worm them regularly, and I, you sort of wonder, you know, 
Are you better off just coexisting with parasites? Are you better off having pets? I mean, these are the questions I think a lot of patients are asking themselves. Well, certainly having pets um, for young infants, um, certain cats, dogs may reduce uh, allergy. But once they become allergic sensitized, then in some patients you're left with a family cat and dog that the patient's symptomatic uh, to. So it's a little bit hard. In the past, we used to say, oh, no, you shouldn't have a cat. But the bacteria that cat and dog spring sometimes uh, will reduce allergy. But despite that, some people will become allergic to cat and dog, and then they see a mean allergist like me to (laughs) say, you've got to give away the dog. (laughs) And the kids end up crying, and, you know, it's a very difficult situation. (laughs) Certainly smoking, you know, there's no doubt um, parents who smoke, uh, the risk of... um, allergic disease increases. So at least there's one thing you can look people in the eye and say stop smoking for many other reasons as well as allergy for their children. Oh, that's great. I've, I've not thought about smoking as a factor for, for allergy, so that's, that's a, a really important bit of information. Um, let's talk desensitisation now. Um, we, I mean, GPs are often involved in administering desensitisation. Um, can you tell us a bit more about it, um, when it will work, when it doesn't, and tell us a bit more perhaps about oral desensitisation? Yep. Um, desensitisation is essentially giving initially small amounts of the allergen increasing um, um, over a period of uh, months um, to what we call a maintenance allergen. It works very well uh, for B uh, anaphylaxis, and works uh, also very well for patients with uh, allergic rhinitis. But it requires a certain amount of skill trying to identify um, what the patient's allergic to and whether there are appropriate allergens for desensitizing. So an example is trying to desensitize for horse. The allergen is not standardized. So you might be giving rubbish. Mm. Uh, Similarly, there's no doubt some patients are clinically allergic to mold, but the mold allergen is of poor quality for many of the allergens. So you've got to know um, about the quality of the allergens uh, before you um, start administrating it by injections, because it's not simple. It's a um, three-year cycle for injections. And um, it's important that you choose the right patient and the right allergens. You need to know in different environments which grass, uh, which tree pollen uh, is prevalent uh, because what's in Queensland is very different from what's in Tasmania. So it's knowledge uh, of the local allergens. The other problem, of course, is native allergens. We don't have a supplier uh, for some of the allergens that are a problem uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. majority of our suppliers are based in the northern hemisphere so trying to access some of the southern hemisphere grasses uh, and tree uh, pollen is a problem Mm. so for allergic rhinitis immunotherapy desensitization works Uh, if you choose the right patient and right allergen for bees they work really well there are now some new treatments as you say it's not just injections there's some drops and there are some tablets available. The advantage of that is no needles. Yep. So if you tell a six-year-old no needles, they're very happy. The other advantage is the risk of anaphylaxis um, is much, much, much lower. The risk of exacerbating asthma is extremely low with uh, the sublingual. The problem with the sublingual, whether they're tablets or drops, is the limited amount of allergens. So 
the drops um, and certainly the tablets are northern hemisphere grasses. So if you've got patients allergic to Bermuda, Cooch, Johnson and Bahia, it's not in the current tablets that are available. Mm. So you might be desensitizing for rye grass and timothy grass, but if you're allergic to Bermuda Cooch, which is more southern hemisphere, Johnson Bahia, which is more temperate tropical, you might not um, be using the appropriate allergen. The other thing is these drops and tablets have to be taken daily for three years. Uh, my teenage patients, I you ask them and they're not going to take it. So with the advantage of needles, the GPs, their nurses remind patients, you get a reminder. And when you get the SMS reminder, I think adherence is actually really good with immunotherapy. And if they're not taking it, I know, because the GPs will write to me and say, oh, patients not come for allergy shots. Mm -hmm. But with the drops and tablets, I don't. So you've got to balance, uh, and it's also more expensive, uh, double the price of injections, and often not rebated uh, by private health insurance. So it's something you need to discuss with private health insurance companies. Richard, that's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today about allergy. Um, thanks, Richard. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's the end of the episode. We'll look forward to seeing you next week for The Good GP.